humans. Hello, humans. How are you? How are you? I am thrilled to be here occupying your brain for just a little bit on this Monday morning. This, oh, who is this? This is Deep Voice Deli Krug talking to you from AM 950. You are listening to me on LE 2.0, my show where I talk about being an idealist or a practical idealist and where I highlight other idealists and then also talk about my work because the station owner says, Ellie, we need to talk about your work, what you're doing in the world. So, hello again. If you've been a regular listener, thank you. If you're a new listener, welcome. And for my new listeners, just so you know, you're listening to what sounds like a, a man's voice, a dude's voice. And my name is Ellie. And so I'm one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world. Um, apparently, I've been not been saying that a whole lot on this show. And uh, recently, I had a listener, thank you so much for um, emailing me, dear listener, female listener, who said, Ellie, you came out on the show as, as transgender, and, and thank you for doing that. And I'm going to share that with people. She's a school teacher, and, and I just was like, oh, I guess I haven't been talking about being trans. There you go, and I'm done talking about it now. Today, for our A slot, where I talk about idealists, I want to talk about James Meredith, um, somebody who I, I, I really believe is in the category of persistent idealist. Um, some of older listeners, um, you know, my age group, you know, you may recall the name of James Meredith. Um, younger listeners, um, probably not. Um, James Meredith was the first black person to be admitted to the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, this uh, school is called Old Miss. Um, and in fact, it's a, it's a school I visited earlier this year in February when I took a trip to the south speaking and listening, a road trip. But now I want to take you back to 1962. Um, and for our younger listeners, you know, please, I'm not trying to throw the age thing at you, just I'll, I'll stop doing that. I want you to try and imagine a time when racism was not under the radar, rather when it was overt and endorsed by many state governments, in the, particularly in the South, but we had our problems in the rest of the country as well. And where this racism resulted in various forms of disenfranchisement. And in Mississippi, that disenfranchisement was in the form of segregation in um, one form of it was in the form of state schools. So Mississippi had some state colleges or universities that were white only and others that were black only. So think about that for a second. Think that of, of the University of Minneapolis, excuse me, the, the U in Minneapolis as only a white school. And if you are black, African-American, you needed to go to UMD um, in Duluth to go there to, to get an education. I mean, today in 2018, it boggles our minds that that's the way it was. But this was the way it was in our country um, not even 60 years ago. So... Along comes James Merithus, a black man born in Mississippi in 1933. He grew up most of his life in Mississippi, um, got his high school degree, went into the Air Force in 1951, and served in the military until 1960. Again, serving in the military, protecting a country where um, the state that he was from would not allow him to attend um, any university of his choosing. He came back to Mississippi and he attacked, attended Jackson State College 
in uh, in in Jackson, Mississippi. That was a black college for two years. Got good grades. And then before graduating from Jackson State, or before ending his tenure there, he was inspired by President Kennedy and decided to apply to Ole Miss. Um, um, and he wrote in his application, and I'm going to read something to you. Um, if you want to read up on James Meredith, go to Wikipedia. That's where I get a lot of my material. But in his application to Ole Miss, he wrote this, quote, Nobody handpicked me. I believed and believe now that I have a divine responsibility. I am familiar with the probable difficulties involved in such a move as I am undertaking, and I am fully prepared to pursue it all the way to a degree from the University of Mississippi, period, unquote. He applied twice and was denied twice uh, admission to Ole Miss. Then, with the help of the NAACP, filed suit in federal court. The district court held that he had a right to attend uh, Ole Miss. A state, the state of Mississippi, appealed that all the way to the Supreme Court, which denied the appeal. All this time, the Mississippi governor, a man named Ross Barnett, vowed he would never allow Ole Miss to be desegregated. But the federal court, that would be the appeals court for the federal government, entered an injunction against Barnett and ordered him to be arrested because of his refusal to follow court orders about uh, admitting um, James Meredith. Not only that, they started fining him $10,000 for each day he refused to admit Meredith. And then Barnett had this problem because he had been on the record to his whole state saying he wouldn't allow desegregation at Old Miss, and, uh, and now he had the federal court saying that he had to do that, and he didn't want to be paying 10000 bucks a day for a fine. Ultimately, he and President Kennedy negotiated a way for Barnett to save face, and that included Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, ordering 500 marshals to accompany Meredith to Ole Miss. But before that happened, there was rioting at Ole Miss when they got word that Meredith was going to be starting. Students at Ole Miss uh, rioted. They burned cars and partly buildings and went through and vandalized buildings and all that type of stuff. That then prompted President Kennedy to order the Miss, um, Mississippi National Guard federalized. And they showed up on campus with their steel helmets and bayonet, bayoneted uh, guns. Um, the day of ri after the, uh, the day of rioting, on October 1, 1962... James Meredith began to attend classes with federal marshals around. Those federal marshals stayed for an entire year. By August of 18, 1963, um, James Meredith had obtained his degree from Ole Miss, and he graduated. During that time that he was at Ole Miss, he lived on campus in a dorm, and he was the victim of severe harassment. Now, this is where we get to that persistent thing, because notwithstanding all of the difficulties that James Meredith had, he hung in there, as idealists do. A true idealist never, ever gives up. And so people on the campus, I mean, he'd go and, and sit in the cafeteria, people would turn their backs on him, or if he sat at a table with white, white people, they would get up and walk away. He was harassed in his dorm, and yet he persisted. Three years after graduating from Ole Miss, in 1966, James Meredith um, began a solo walk from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi. That walk was titled, A March Against Fear. 
as he went along the way, invited only black men to join him, wanting to highly uh, publicize and bring focus to the fact of the great racial oppression going on in the Mississippi Delta. On that march from, from Memphis to Jackson, Mississippi, Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi, on that march, James Meredith was shot by a white man. And while Meredith was in the hospital, he wasn't killed, thank God. While he was in the hospital, civil rights organizers scrambled to resume the march. And then they organized 15,000 people. And as they resumed that march several weeks later, James Meredith rejoined the march. And he finished it with them. There's that persistent thing yet again. Later, James Meredith published a book um, in 1966 titled Three Years in Mississippi. He would go on and earn a law degree from Columbia University. He would then also run for political office but never be elected. He was actually a Republican, not a Democrat. That was back in the days when being a Republican stood for something way different than it does today, unfortunately. And he viewed himself simply as an American who sought to avail himself of his constitutional rights. He actually refused to call what he did uh, civil rights work. He, he refused it. And he summed up his work in, tw in a 2002 interview with CNN where he said that his e efforts to integrate Ole Miss were, quote, I was engaged in a war. I considered myself engaged in a war from day one. And my objective was to force the federal government, the Kennedy administration at the time, into a position where they would have to use the United States military force to enforce my rights as a citizen, period, unquote. James Meredith is still alive. He lives in Jackson, Mississippi with his wife. And, um, and on the 40th anniversary of James Meredith um, entering Ole Miss, uh, the university installed a statute in his uh, honor on campus. I've been to Ole Miss. It is nothing like what it was in 1961 or 63 or 62. Not at all. I went there and saw many black people thriving, getting an education, being themselves, helping to build Mississippi as well as our country. All because of James Meredith and the work that he did, the bravery that he had, and the persistence that he showed. Quite remarkable, if you ask me. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on AM 950, Ellie 2.0. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com or email me at, at uh, Ellie 2.0, Ellie 2.0, radio at gmail.com. I'll be back for the next segment. Thanks. With all the convenient big box stores that sell appliances, why do so many Minnesotans choose Warner Stellion? Check online to learn that Warner Stellion is a Minnesota family-owned business for over 60 years. Warner Stellion sells more brands than anyone else, and our passionate specialists are committed to impressing you so much that you'll refer us to everyone you know. That's our mission here at Warner Stellion. Ask around, check us out online, and when it's your time to buy appliances, join over 300,000 Minnesota homeowners and choose the specialists, Warner Stellion. 
With spring, it's car wash season. Thank goodness for the Luther Advantage program from Rudy Luther Toyota. Not only do I save 10 cents off per gallon of gas at holiday station stores, but I also get big discounts on car washes. And with free two years of maintenance with every new Toyota purchased, I can get my oil change and spring service done with the best service and maintenance department at Rudy Luther Toyota. Clear your spring checklist with great service from Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169. This is Chad, owner of AM950, here to tell you about Snap Construction. They're experts in roofing, siding, window, and insurance restoration. They have energy-efficient products available for both residential and commercial properties. This spring, when we needed a company to take a look at a problem with our roof, I called the company I knew I could trust, Snap Construction. I've known Ryan, the owner, at Snap Construction for years, so I knew I could trust him. Don't just take my word for it. Check out their reviews online. They are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior contractor online in the metro area. Over the years, Ryan has always said the same thing to me about his work. If we build it, shouldn't we be held accountable for the work indefinitely? He backed that statement up years ago when Snap Construction was a pioneer in offering a lifetime craftsmanship guarantee on all their work. For a free estimate or general questions, call the locally owned company AM950 Trusts Snap Construction at 612-333-SNAP. That's 612-333-SNAP, or find them online at snapconstruction.com. They have financing options available. Northeast Minneapolis is known for its creativity, and you'll know exactly why when you eat at Hazel's Northeast. Their creatively prepared comfort food will have you coming back week after week. Breakfasts like biscuits and gravy, granola pancakes, and brisket hash. For lunch, homemade soup, and one of the best Rubens in town. And don't miss the daily risotto or Chef Ali's ever-changing dinner specials. Come on in. Bring the whole family. Hazel's Northeast delivers real good food. Family owned at 29th and Johnson in Minneapolis. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. LE 2.0 radio. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug. Thank you, listeners. That was I. What I'm, I loved. I love the story about James Meredith, and I love the fact that because he was persistent. Think of the the road that he paved for so many other people, and that is the value of persistence. It's also the value of being an idealist. It's also certainly the value of having some bravery and being fearless. His um, march, march against fear, um, in uh, 1966, um, reminds us about the importance of being fearless. So this second segment of LE 2.0, what I call my B slot, is where I talk about my practical idealism and how I put it into action. And and I want to continue the theme about persistence because um, uh, there's some been some persistence in my life. So. One of the things um, about me, uh, other than the fact that I was a trial lawyer for a very long time in 
in Boston, first in Boston and then in Iowa. And then later on, I became executive director of a legal nonprofit. One of the other things about me is I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, I had been a writer. I had been a journaler for a long, long time um, and had done some writing when I was in college. But, but I, what I bumped up against was um, the fact that it was very hard for me to write authentic, authentically from my heart when I was hidden, um, struggling as a, uh, presenting to the public as a man, when I was really female. And it just wasn't working. That I, whatever I would try and write when it was coming from my heart, it did not work because I wasn't living as me. And so, you know, I, trans, uh, I transitioned genders in um, 2009. I moved to the Twin Cities in 2010. And before I moved to the cities, I, I had a, you know, I had a place up here where I would come up on the weekends. And in, and in uh, January of 2009, I started to take classes at the loft on, uh, on Washington Avenue. And I, I walked into the loft, the very first memoir writing class um, at the loft, not knowing anything. And, and you have to understand, I, I wrote like a writer, or excuse me, like a lawyer. And writing like a lawyer is not like writing like a human. And I had to learn, unlearn writing as a lawyer and had to learn how to write as a human. And so I went to the loft to take a class and I walked in. And the very first day, you know, as we're going around saying, what do we want to accomplish? I said, I'm going to write my memoir. That was in January of 2009. Four years later, in March of 2013, I actually published my memoir. Uh, the title of the memoir is Getting to Ellen, a memoir about love, honesty, and gender change. And um, let me just tell you, that was an act of persistence, uh, continuing that theme about persistence, because it took a lot to do that. It was not easy to learn, to unlearn writing as a lawyer. Trust me. And, and then, in order to write like a human, I had to... I, to write my memoir, it's 106,000 106, words is the memoir. But to write it, I wrote a million words. I went, wrote a million words and burned through one laptop in order to get there. And, and I did that because once I set my mind to it, I wasn't going to give up. And so my, my memoir is, is a book, yes, about my story, but people who read it believe that and it's intended as well as a, a story that's much larger about than a story simply about somebody who transitioned genders. And the, the memoir itself is what's called a braided memoir. So there are actually two stories in the memoir that kind of go along simultaneously. The, one of those braids, it's a much shorter story, but it shows up intermittently in, in the memoirs about my father's alcoholism, the impact that it had on me, as a child, and uh, about ultimately my father's death, although his fa my father's death shows up pretty early, like right away in the book. The other story, the longer story, um, the more um, richly defined story in the memoir is my story about coming to grips with the idea that my brain did not match my body, having to come to further grips with the idea that um, I would have to give up love in my life in order to have me in order to have my authenticity I would have to give up my soulmate Lydia who 
between dating and then marriage, we were together for 32 years before it fell apart. And I had to accept the idea that I needed to love me more than I loved her. And let me just tell you, that was very, very difficult. In, uh, as it relates to my idealism, in the book I write about how Dr. King and Robert F. Kennedy, um, their words and, their li and as they lived their lives, what they taught us, as well as their deaths, how they impacted me. And when they both died in 1968, I was 11 years old. Um, and their actions uh, shaped me um, all the way to actually to right now as I'm speaking to you. This entire show, LE 2.0, is about idealism because of those two people, Dr. King and Robert F. Kennedy. But my idealism is also in the book in other ways. I mean, I do believe that the book acts as, it, it serves as a guidepost, as kind of a roadmap for all humans who are struggling for authenticity, not just transgender or gay or lesbian or bisexual humans, but anyone, regardless of gender, regardless of sexuality. I hear from readers across the country who tell me that my book has real meaning for them. These are readers who aren't LGBTQ. Uh, readers who tell me such things as there was a woman who came up to me once, read my book, and she said, Ellie, thank you for writing your book, and thank you for giving me permission to divorce my husband. I mean, my book doesn't tell people to get divorced, but it certainly offers a way of finding your authenticity. <laughs> Other people have told me that it gives them clarity about how to make big decisions. Many tears went into writing that book, I have to tell you. Many, many tears. Um, and you know, um, uh, well, I don't, I'm not going to dwell on those tears. Um, and sometimes idealism begets other idealism. You know, I mean, it happened to me... Um, after I had done a reading from my book, so as I'm writing the book, it's not done, but there are chapters that are fairly well done, and I was getting invited to go and do readings, you know, excerpts, just two or three pages, 15 minutes of, 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 of reading from the book. Well, I did one of those readings um, in, I don't know, 2012, 2011, and I, at the time of that reading, I'd been searching for a publisher. Again, we have persistence. If you're going to write a book and you want to get it published, you have to be persistent. Um, and I'd had one publisher that I thought I had lined up. For six months, they kept telling me, yeah, we think, we think, we think. And then at the end, they said no. <laughs> they decided that they weren't going to do any more memoirs. That was pretty upsetting and disappointing to me, and I was pretty forlorn. So I did this reading, and... Um, and as I said, sometimes idealism begets other idealism. And I'm doing the reading. It was, you know, the section from the book made people laugh. And it was, you know, it was, um, it was a good section from the book. And just by chance, after I got done, after everyone was done reading, there were other uh, writers at this um, thing where they were doing their readings. A man came up to me afterwards and he asked if I had a publisher. I said no. And then he then asked if I'd like some help with getting self-published. This man's name was, is uh, Steve Lenius. Steve uh, turned out to be a book architect, someone who can arrange the interior of a book so it looks very professional. Plus, he had experience in doing book covers. He had written his own book um, about LGBTQ cult culture. And more than that, Steve Lenius is a wonderful idealist and a wonderful man with a wonderful heart. 
And so he and I started down the road um, of me deciding that I would self-publish the book. It's Today it's technically called Print on Demand. Um, Steve absolutely knew what he was doing, and to this day I am indebted to him because while I paid him money to help me, he put way more time into that book than um, what I paid him. I guess that's what idealists do for each other as well. Um, the book will, Getting to Ellen, will never be a bestseller in the New York Times, but it continues to sell well, even today, five years later. And I think that that's because people will always struggle with trying to find authenticity. Um, I think that the book is accepted, does well, in part because it's about the power of the human spirit, that you can never tamp it down, that the spirit will always be there. And certainly my story in the book is a story about being persistent, about trying to find my authenticity and not giving up. Getting to Ellen, if you're interested, is available at Majors and Quinn in Uptown. Also, you can get it on Kindle, Nook, Amazon, Apple, iBooks. Or you can contact me um, at lejkrug at gmail.com and you can buy an inscribed copy from me. I'm also writing a second book. So the first book is titled Getting to Ellen. The second book is, is, is uh, that I'm working on with not a whole lot of luck because of the limited time I have. But the second book is titled Being Ellen. A, more, um, a newly minted woman um, takes on the world. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0. I hope you like this show. I am so passionate about this show and about the need for idealism. It's a word we don't use. We don't talk about it nearly enough. I want to do a big thanks before I leave to my producer, um, Hunter Hawes. Hunter, you are just wonderful. Listeners, I'll be back next Monday with another show. Thanks so very much. But I